please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Good early morning. <laughs> Today's reading is from John 17, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. we pray together, shall we? Dear God, thank you so much for your kindness towards us. That even though our clocks change <laughs> and surprise us uh, with what supposedly is the same time of the morning but feels extra weary, that your strength remains sure and steady and unchanged. We're grateful that as we come, we can come and hear your word, which has given comfort to your children for generations, and we can anticipate comfort once again. We're grateful that as we gather in the name of of Jesus by the power of the Spirit for the glory of the Father, that you are indeed here. We don't have to ask, for you've already promised you will. Instead, we have to be aware. God, make us aware. Help us to see with fresh eyes today. Help us to hear us to know within our depths in a way that's even beyond knowing. Help us to feel convicted over your presence, over your love, over your goodness and your beauty. May that overflow into how we show up in the world 
in every space we show up in, Lord. Thank you for this small world. It is a beautiful to be alive. And by that I mean to know Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we've all had that moment, and we all have our stories as it relates to these kinds of moments. And for some of you, it may be the moment you watch the sunrise on a finger lake, sitting with a cup of coffee in a cabin that's laden with memories. For others of you, maybe it's walking and being around brilliant works of art, standing underneath the Sistine Chapel that has stood above generations of beauty. For others, it may be hearing that one song, that you know, that one song that the moment you hear it, you're like, oh, turn it up, and it brings you back, or it brings you forward, or it just puts you in that space. For me, one of the first times I experienced it, uh, at least that I remember, uh, I was in middle school, and I was on a trip with some other middle schoolers to Tohahachi, New Mexico, and uh, we had this brilliant idea that in the middle of the night, we were going to run in the desert, a bunch of dudes. Um, I've, I've had better ideas than this, but this, was not, and this definitely was not a good idea. We were running in the middle of the desert, a bunch of middle schoolers with flashlights. And then we get to the top of a plateau. I still don't know how we didn't get like bit by a rattlesnake or something. This is like a lot of my life, friends. Okay, <laughs> so get to the top of the plateau. There's this giant stone. And we lay out on this stone and we just look up. And I remember thinking in middle school, nobody told me there were this many stars. Nobody told me. And I'm just laying there. I'm like, there, there seems to be more light than there is darkness in the sky here. And, and, and I, I tell you, I didn't just see the stars. I felt them. You know, it like left an impression on my soul. And I wanted to, I remember laying there, like trying to open my eyes wider, you know, um, wanting to kind of rip my chest open so my heart could take in more. And, and in those spaces where you, you kind of run out of language, like you're trying to describe the indescribable, we kind of surrender, and then eventually we get to the word beauty. <laughs> like in some ways we're like, that's just beautiful, right? And in many ways... Beauty is our first cause. Beauty is the thing that moves us. It gets us going, and, and it has a, an extraordinary effect on our lives. When you experience beauty, it moves you. And you may not have even thought you need to be, needed to be moved. <laughs> you may not have even wanted to be moved, but beauty moves you. Suddenly you find, after you've experienced beauty, that you're not in the same place you were, even if you're sitting in the same chair with the same lean looking at the same work of art. You're moved. So often we can think that participation or engagement or response comes with activity, when in reality some of the greatest responses happen when we are utterly still and silent and beauty moves us deep within. And when it does, when, what's so fascinating about beauty, too, is we always welcome it. And it, when beauty, like, hits you, it gets past all of your defenses. When you wouldn't let anything else through, beauty just woos, and it's like, no, no, 
you know, <laughs> does like Jedi mind tricks on you. Like, it's a, no, we are not the droids you're looking for. You're like, oh, please come in. Um, and it just makes its way in because in that moment when you taste beauty, you know, like in a way beyond knowing that this is genuine goodness. And your, your soul aches for that. And so you let beauty get past certain parts of your soul, your mind, your heart, that you wouldn't let anything else get past. Which is why I think it's really fascinating that out of all the things that Jesus could pray for, when God talks to God, right, this is a high priestly prayer. This is where Jesus is talking to the Father. Out of all the things that Jesus could ask for you and for me, he interestingly enough says, reveal my beauty. Now, we heard the word glory when the text was read. Reveal my glory. Glorify me. I have glorified you. This, this, this shows up eight times in this rich prayer of Jesus, either its noun form or its verbal form. But in essence, when you get down and you begin to study the movement of glory across the biblical text, glory really is, is, is our encapsulation or our, our grasping after the mystery of beauty and the mystery of God. His splendor. You know, often glory is described as this brilliance. It's this light or this heaviness or this abundance. It's the abundant goodness and the genuineness of that goodness that comes so brilliantly that we almost can't begin to fathom it or look upon it. That becomes Beauty, when we sense it, and when we sense beauty, we make sense of the world differently. It moves us. And that's why Jesus asks, out of all the things, he gets to, in many ways, these are his last words. And he says, reveal my beauty. Why? Because Jesus' beauty moves us to change. Beauty moves us, but Jesus' beauty, it moves us to change like nothing else. Change maybe those spaces that we think are grotesque, but Jesus wants to call beautiful. And so he's changing our perspective. Things that are genuinely gross or ugly or disturbing, and he wants to heal them. So both may be true. And he wants to change us beyond what we can imagine, beyond our deepest hopes and our greatest fears. <laughs> Jesus' beauty moves us to change. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to follow what Jesus wants. And we're going to pull back the curtain and let his beauty be revealed. So if you haven't already, would you turn with me to John chapter 17, verse 1. John 17, verse 1. Let's look together at that passage. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I love this. Jesus is like, now's the time. This is it. This is the grand gallery opening. When you think about our four chapter, this is the great gallery opening of an extraordinary masterpiece that the masses have been waiting for. And now's the time. It's opening night. And this has all been building to this moment. If you just turn over to John chapter 1, at the very beginning of John's gospel account, 
He's been teasing this out. He's been setting the stage. John chapter 1, right? We see in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's laying the stage for, for setting the stage for how Jesus is the Word who is fully God. And then you get to verse 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his, what? Glory. Glory is of, only, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen his beauty. We've seen his beauty as, as, as the only son from the Father. And it's gracious and it's full of truth. This is astounding. And then you get to chapter 2. And you find Jesus at the wedding of Cana. Right? And there's no wine. There's a bunch of communal shame that's about to happen. And Jesus' mom comes to him and says, Jesus, you know what to do. And he's like, my hour has not yet come. My hour is... Why are you coming to me? This isn't the time for me to reveal my beauty. It's not yet time. Well, here Jesus says, now is the time. Whenever you see this language of hour, it's always connected to the cross. We're going to see this here soon. But he's like, my time has come. It's here. This glory, this beauty that I've had since before the very foundation of the world, it's going to be shown to everyone. And it's going to be on display. And it's hard to stress how magnificent this is. Such that even John says in John chapter 1 verse 3 that everything that was created was created through him. The one who's glorious, the one who's beautiful. Everything that has been created that has a twinge of beauty is an echo of him. Such that even if we look at a rose, friends, the simplicity, a red velvet petal, its richness, its color, right? The softness of them. Have you ever felt just like a rose petals? What a wonderful texture. If you're a textures person, you're like, ooh, make me a shirt of this, please. You smell a rose and your olfactory nerves and all these things just going haywire, going, woo! Like there's just something about it that makes your body feel alive. All of that came through Jesus. And it's meant to make us look at Jesus and go, what kind of beauty is in him? That this came through him. And at the very dawn of time when through Christ all things are created that have been created and we look in Genesis, what does God say after each day? It is good, right? Interestingly enough, another translation in the midst of the lexical ranges, you could understand God saying it is beautiful. It is beautiful. So often, and this is helpful, when we come to translations, right, there are certain Cultural assumptions, they're very trustworthy and helpful, but there's richness in going deeper. And really, we could even see God saying at the very end, it is very beautiful. Not just good and useful, which is what we often think of when we think of, oh, this is helpful or innately good. What is innate? That which is innately beautiful, aesthetically astounding and pleasurable and delightful. And all of that flowing from Jesus. It's hard to stress how extraordinary this is, such that when you get to Exodus and you come to Moses, in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses comes to God and he says, what do you say? Show me your glory. I just want to see your beauty. 
oh, if I could just see that, it would change everything. And I want to encourage you, a little homework assignment. Go read Exodus 33 and 34 after we've been in this passage. There is so much overlap, so much but something better than what Moses saw, or maybe more full is a more appropriate way, of, and more rich, and more, the curtains pulled back even further when we see Jesus. And Moses, he hears the Lord's name, and he knows his character, and he experiences the beauty of God, if just a portion, because God says, you can't see my face and live. That's, it's not because it's so awful, it's because it's so good and beautiful and true that you can't even begin to fathom. If you want another interesting read, go look at uh, C.S. Lewis's article in a series of articles entitled Weight of Glory called Transposition. And he talks about if we really understood the beauty of God, the glory of God, and how it would like, if it really just, in, like, if we experienced it, what that would do to our neurons. <laughs> the firing of those babies, right? It would almost, it could make your brain explode, the beauty, the wonder, the awe. And Moses, he experiences just a pinch of the beauty of God. And he falls on his face, blown away by the beauty and wonder. And then what happens when he comes back from experiencing God? What happens? His face is aglow. And people are like, whoa, you, what have you, where have you been? <laughs> I can't even look at your face. Well, it's because I was looking at God, and that must have brought, there was something con, in, in contagious, which we'll get to in a minute, about the beauty of God when you behold it. That people see it in you. And yet Moses just got a pinch, friends. <laughs> then you get to Isaiah. <laughs> Isaiah 6, he sees God on his throne, and the seraphim, they're, they're surrounding, singing, holy, holy, holy. And what are two of their wings doing? Covering their face. Because they can't even look upon the beauty of God. <laughs> and then Jesus says, now is the time. Let it out. <laughs> Unveil it. Reveal it. Now the hour's come. Let my glory that I've had before the foundation of the world, let it be seen. Let them see how beautiful we are. And you know what he shows when he begins to show his beauty. It, it's fascinating that right after this, after he asks for this, he has an extraordinary movement. But you know what we don't see? When he reveals his beauty, we don't see this. We don't see the picturesque, soaring glory of the empire. We don't see this, a conquering image of bloodshed of others and of his enemies. And we don't see this even, this next picture, the, the tranquility of creation. And you know, God could have used a whole host of images to highlight who he is. 
He could have used so many things. I mean, to be clear, he, there are so many. He could have talked about the galaxies. He could have talked about the stars. He could have shown it in the beauty of, of a rich mountaintop or, or a glorious cedar. Yes, and all of these, they reveal something of God. But when we get to the climax of his beauty, the robustness of who he is, the inner workings of his character, when we really get to see God's beauty on display, we see this. turning point of history. The climax of beauty, full of grace and utterly true and genuine. We see the God-man torn asunder, his flesh ripped and blood gushing from his wounds. Right after chapter 17, when he says, now's the hour, show him who we are, we get to the cross. We want to jump to the resurrection, but it is revealed. It blows everyone's mind is on the cross. God's golden hour is pierced. And it's not just sacrifice or sacrificial love. It's that God chose the one with limitless power instead of abandoning his creation who treasonously rejected him from the dawn of creation, instead pursued and died for them to pay for our sins and to make a way for us to experience his love and to live with him in loving union for eternity. That's where we see his heart. And it's gorgeous. It's so good. I mean, it's perfect goodness. It's utter truth. And we sense it. And the beauty of the cross. The cross may be one of the most permanent forms of beauty this world over, which in and of itself is absurd to say out loud. The fact that when Jesus is resurrected and he has his resurrected body, he doesn't scrub off his scars. That's not like an artist touch up after the fact. Oh, there's holes there. Let's fill those back in. And instead, the scars in his hands and even the scars in his side become emblems of beauty to explore with Thomas's touch. They become windows to extraordinary beauty anchored for eternity. And yet, what's also astounding is that Jesus' beauty is easily overlooked. I mean, it's, it's shocking, friends. It's disorienting. Um, it's like going to a, you know, a yard sale and finding a Jackson Pollock and being like, oh, I don't know where I can put this into my house. I know it's only $5, but, uh, and if you don't know, or, you know, Jackson Pollock, he was just a really well-known artist, but, you know, you like, you look at it and you're like, ah, I don't even know where I put that. Um, I think I'll get this clock instead. You know, like, it has this idea that there's no way, I can't even fathom how this would fit within my concept of beauty and within the framework of my life. And Jesus, he's, oh, I mean, if you've been walking with us in the Gospels, he's subversive when it comes to truth. 
He's subversive when it comes to goodness. He is just as equally subversive when it comes to beauty. If you want to have fun, you could go check out a guy named Hans Balthasar. You know, he's a fun guy. Turn of the 20th century, uh, a Swiss theologian. And he talks about the transcendentals. Wherever you see being, genuine being, you find beauty, truth, and goodness together. And here, Jesus is constantly the very source of being, reorienting what beauty looks like. And listen, the Greeks didn't get it when they saw it. One of the first images we have was kind of a graffiti etched on a wall, and it's this. You can barely make it out, but it's actually a cross there, and the man on the cross has a donkey's head. And in the inscription, and there's a little a, a gentleman on the side there, the description uh, or the inscription says, Alexamenos worships his God. This is mocking the Christian movement. One of the earth, because it's absurd. You worship a God who died on a cross? This is how we punish criminals. People made fun of this. They thought it was stupid, absurd. You're worshiping a donkey. Are you crazy? This isn't what the gods do. The gods have power, and they do what they want because they have power. No god would die, and especially die on a Roman cross. Many Greeks didn't get this. This was foolishness. Absurd. You think it's foolish by our culture standards today? It was just as foolish in the first century. And many Jews didn't get it either. This was blasphemy of the greatest degree. Not only that the limitless God would be able to take on human flesh, meaning limit himself to human form, and then to die on a Roman cross, which is a form of curse to be hung on a tree. Why would a God who has limitless power and is utterly good allow this to happen to him? This is a mockery to God. So to the Greeks, it was foolishness. To the Jews, it was a scandal, right? This, this is absurd. This beauty is easily overlooked. And how shocking. It just didn't fit. It's kind of like the sunset of Montemahor. This is a painting by Vincent van Gogh. Actually, interestingly enough, when it first surfaced, it was discredited because it didn't have one of the common signs from Van Gogh of a signature in a certain corner. So you know where it was placed? It was placed in a Norwegian attic for 70 years. 70 years. And then it resurfaced, and the Van Gogh Museum had now advanced technology, and they went and they explored this painting with greater detail, and it matched everything of Van Gogh's style. And they found a letter where Van Gogh was actually writing to his brother saying, I just painted this sunset image, you know, this, this, this landscape of the sunset. It's really beautiful. And it matches this. Suddenly, what they thought could have never fit within Van Gogh's collection. Now with new information, suddenly they're surprised that surely this is beautiful <laughs> and worthy of gander. Same way with the cross. It doesn't fit so many people's perspectives of God because why would someone with limitless power die for those who run from him? Give up everything that we might have everything. That's not how people work, but that's how this God works. And that's at the core of his beauty, genuine goodness on display in a way that is extremely scandalous and so many overlooked. 
And if that bothers folks, where Jesus goes next with this prayer is even more astounding to me. Because it's not just that his glory is displayed in him on the cross. Where he goes next in this prayer, if we go down to verse 22, look with me. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. (laughs) That they may be one, even as we are one. To them, to them. This isn't to everyone. Not everyone has this glory. To be clear, he makes and goes to great lengths to highlight that there are some who see his beauty, who behold it and see it as beautiful, and to them he gives him and gives them his beauty. You see, with Jesus, beholding Jesus' beauty, it actually makes us beautiful. When you actually see Jesus for who he is in the midst of his sacrifice and his utter otherness, the way that he points towards others with every bit of his life for the sake of others, even though he has the highest. The Apostle Paul talks about this, right? Philippians. Even though he was of equal with God, he goes all the way to the depths, becoming human, a servant, even to death, even to death on a cross. It's absurd. But when you begin to see this, that beauty comes alive in you. That beauty comes to paint your life. You see, only Jesus' beauty can change us like that, friends. I think that's what's really, really astounding. His image, his cross-shaped life, dying for others again and again, and again, when it costs us everything, becomes our image as the church. His beauty is our beauty. And those of you who engage or study the arts or engage, you know this, like, Beauty and the arts, they they have a threefold movement almost every time. The Academy Awards are coming tonight, you know, is that right? The Oscars, some of you have got it earmarked. Others of you are like, what is what? Um, But we know this, like, what happens is a a threefold movement. First, when beauty, when when you experience beauty, it arrests you. It stops you. Like, when you see it, you just go, okay, what is that? And you, you suddenly feel like you can't move. It draws you in, sucks you in, one might even say, and you're just enraptured in the moment. It doesn't just stop you, though. It claims you. Suddenly, like if you've watched a really good movie, what happens? Those phrases start showing up in your conversations with your friends, right? Like suddenly you're like, and I do this, like I watched Friday Night Lights, a TV show, and I just was amazed by the father figure in that show. That I started using his sayings like all the time. It's like, it's not lost on me, man. You know? Which is what he always, I just thought he was such an exceptional father. Not perfect, but finally, a good model in the midst of our cultural representation. Someone who stuck with his wife, someone who cared for his kids and cared for other people's kids and was a good model and sought for integrity of all things and actually sought the betterment and challenging others to be greater. I mean, it was wonderful. It was gentle, but also courageous. I was like, man, come on. But I found myself using his language. It claims you. Good art claims you. And then it makes you a missionary. It sends you every time. When you've seen a good movie, the moment, the moment you see, you're like, oh, man, you got to watch this, right? Nobody's got to tell you to share that movie. They got to tell you to stop talking about it. Hey, I get it. I know you loved it, but it was weird, okay? I don't like that kind of movie, whatever, you know? Or if it's a work of art, oh, man, you've got to make it down to the Nelson, this new exhibit. 
oh, I just heard this, this, this extraordinary song. Oh, did you see Patrick Mahomes' perfect path? Like, I mean, there's different forms of beauty, right? Goodness genuinely on display. Touchdown. See, beauty doesn't have to convince you. It doesn't have to prove itself. You just feel it in a moment. It grabs you, it claims you, and it sends you. And you see, when you're enraptured by Jesus' beauty, you know, it's, it's fascinating, and I've preached this text a few times in my life now. There's a lot going on that Jesus is asking for. Interestingly enough, it's all that he's asking the Father to do. So don't go looking here for commands. <laughs> Jesus is saying, Father, you do this, which I just think is really important to know here. But there's other things he's praying. He's praying for protection for followers of Jesus. He's praying for sanctification and being set apart. And he's praying for oneness. But how do those happen? They all are outworkings when you're enraptured with Jesus' beauty. When you're enraptured with the beauty of a crucified and risen Lord, when the, when the evil one, right, because he's like, I'm not taking you out of the world. And he actually says you're going to die. So it's not like he's protecting you from physical pain, okay? But the lies of the evil one are the greatest threat. When those lies come, you're going to think that Jesus is so beautiful that those lies are so dull. And you're like, oh, that's what you're trying to offer me? Do you know what I'm looking at here? That's protection, friends. Reveal your beauty. When he says set them apart like you've set me apart. How are, how are we going to show up differently when you're enraptured by the beauty of Jesus? Once again, it sends you. So you're, ta- and you're, you're showing up differently. Your, hmm, our definition of power is shaped by weakness. Our framework for conquest looks like suffering for the other. Our perspective, when it comes to wisdom, is going to look like foolishness. To some, that When you're enraptured with the beauty of the cross, you're going to look foolish, you're going to look weak, and by golly, you're going to be dying for people. That's going to set you apart. (laughs) If you think that's beautiful and I want that kind of beauty to shape me, it does that. And then oneness, what separates us, friends? The unwillingness to die for the other. Comfort. It's a lot more comfortable not to have that conversation. It's a lot more comfortable to stay on this side of the truth. It's a lot more comfortable to avoid certain topics. It's a lot more comfort. Okay, that's not my rubric as a follower of Jesus anymore. My rubric of Jesus is, where's the cross? Where's the cross? What does it look like to pick up and follow? What does it look like to pick up and follow? What is beautiful here? Well, it's going to look like a cross. So when the world comes with these different avenues and strategies of what beauty looks like, we say, look at the cross. The hour at which God's glory was displayed. That's what's going to shape me. So what do we do in the midst of all this? What we do is we make time to behold Jesus' beauty. It's not a lot of activity. It may not even involve words, friends. It may be sitting perfectly still and receiving. It may be one of the most powerful things you can do as a follower of Jesus. Which isn't that grace? (laughs) 
Nothing you can do to earn it. Nothing you can do to work at it to make it better. But just receive. And the biggest thing is we just can't overlook him. And allow our awareness to become beholding or, or gazing. This is a concentrated, enduring looking and receiving. You know, it's fascinating that uh, Dostoevsky, you know, great writer, um, he went on his honeymoon. And I just got to imagine, like, what an interesting, you know, dynamic that must have been in his marriage. But he went on his honeymoon. And uh, they went into this gallery, and he came across this one painting from Hans Holbein's, and it's called The Dead Christ. And he sat there, and he looked at it for hours. I mean, hours. And he got right up at it. Blown away. And his wife thought that the people were going to think he was crazy. So <laughs> she's like trying to drag him out. But it was his experience was seeing the beauty of Christ dead for him. And it blew him away that it changed the way he wrote The Idiot. If you're familiar with this one. In which the prince says what? Beauty will save the world. This experience, what beauty? Not just beauty in the eye of the beholder, a very subjective framework that we often have. No, this beauty is just as objective as the truth and the goodness we have in Jesus. You know, Kurt Thompson, he's a psychologist and theologian, says that by just sitting, doing nothing, one of the greatest responses is sitting and observing a piece of art. And when you observe it, it expands your imagination. It expands your capacity for engaging others. And you can even psychologically experience the feeling of being seen because of the dynamic you have with a piece of paint. You're not doing anything. You're not active, per se. But you're being activated by beauty. In many ways, that's what I see a sermon to be, a place of Beauty activating you in this time around this, God's word, that is ultimately proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so I ask this morning, are you gripped by the beauty of Jesus' death? When is the last time he stopped you in your tracks? And there can be a couple ways that this takes shape. It could be, looking at a brilliant work of art such like this one that allows you to sit, to be still, and allow beauty to awaken you. Because there's a lot of other images we stare at all day that are shaping our imaginations. All day. Whereas this one needs to be the pinnacle that shapes every other image. The image by which we shape and actually assess every other image as to whether it's worthy and good. Even the image of ourselves, friends. It could be a work of art. It could be listening to God's word read and then allowing your imagination to kind of play it out. What are the facial expressions? What are the Allow God's word to be alive in your imagination, sitting, listening, and being awakened. And it also could be in prayer, friends, just like Jesus is doing here. I love the way that uh, Howard Thurman writes in his 
one of his treatises around a religious experience called The Creative Encounter. He says, prayer is not only the participation in communication with God and the encounter of religious experience, but it is also the readying of the spirit for such communication. Sometimes prayer is just a space to ready yourself for God. And then it can be a place to just open yourself to the contemplation of God rather than always supplication, rather than always interceding for someone else or for yourself, just allowing the richness of God's presence to saturate you. You're doing nothing, but you're doing everything. And it can be some of the deepest work that God does in you. And yes, there can even be a sense where we do that together. We do nothing together, and it is being alone together in which God in many ways can shape our hearts. What a beautiful work of the Spirit. So when's the last time the beauty of the cross has stopped you? Have you let yourself be stopped, be gripped? Or does it always have to be activity? Has the beauty of Christ claimed you? Once again, beauty doesn't force its way, it compels you. Outwardly, it may look the same, but the motivation and the route of transformation is utterly different. And when you experience the beauty of something that transcends you, it actually invites you to transcend yourself, and then it cultivates what we see in verse 13, the joy that sometimes feels just as elusive and transcendent. That's another message for another day. And are you sent? Do you feel sent by the beauty of Jesus? Once again, these followers of Jesus, they, they are meant to be ambassadors of Jesus' beauty in the everyday faculties of life, friends. Bringing beauty, being the first one to pursue reconciliation, the first one to let go of deep wounds. To grieve in healthy ways, but also to let go of when those have sinned against you and to offer forgiveness. To be people who cultivate beauty by creating great spreadsheets. Oh, friends. Great spreadsheets. Being a great manager and navigating conflict and saying the thing rather than just trying to manage personalities and stay until you get your next promotion. Like what? Like, what does it look like to cultivate real cross-shaped beauty on the daily? Hmm. Such that the ugliness of our world is put to shame by the beauty of the cross. And then, as Jesus himself says, we are sent in the world, like he says in verse 18, in the same way that he was sent into the world. When our hour comes, then beauty is on display. What would it look like? And I'm going to close with this. It looks like a cellist in a war zone. In 1992, there was a gentleman who would step out in full coattails by the name of Bedron Smailovic. I think I'm saying that correctly. And he was the principal cellist in the orchestra, the Sar Sar Sarajevo or opera, actually. And while their community was just war-torn and these, they were experiencing shelling and bombs and explosions, he chose to do something audacious. He went out in the middle of this war zone and went to the place of this rubble and after 4 p.m. would just play music. As guns were firing and bombs were shelling off, he would play and bring beauty in the midst of rubble. And some were thinking, this is crazy. 
Why would you do this in the midst of a war zone? This is a time for protection, hunkering down, withdraw. It's not a place for faithful presence. This isn't a time to allow beauty to continue to shine. We have to protect. We have to hide. Not him. And you know what this looks a lot like? It looks like a cross, friends. When everybody else tells you to hide, when even other Christian leaders say, it's time to withdraw, it's time to protect, that has never been our call. It's always been pick up our cross. And when the shells are rummaging our comfort, and it feels like the claims are like bullets whizzing past our faces, we create beauty because we see beauty. And it changes us. And it looks utterly different than the claims of the world. Hmm. You see, only Jesus, only his beauty can move us to change like that. The real question is, will we be holden? Will we stop long enough to really see his beauty? Let's pray. Today's prayer actually was written by Associate Pastor Lidiatis. So I'm going to guide us now through her brilliant words to close out our time. Beautiful God, we thank you that you have chosen to display your glory, your beauty all around us in mountains and valleys, earth and sky, in every corner of the universe. Nature shouts forth praise to the one who made it beautiful. But even before you created anything, beauty was already on display because you are beauty itself. And you love us so much that you sent your son Jesus to dwell among us so that our imaginations could grasp what beauty with flesh looks like. Thank you, God, for the gift of your son. Cross-shaped beauty, beautiful wounds that heal the world, beautiful thorns fit for a king like no other, beautiful beaten body not much to look at, but teeming with life. Beauty that flows red and reaches our hearts. Yes, beauty displayed in broken, sinful humans. Thank you, God, for choosing us to be recipients of your glory. Make us one so we may display the beauty of your triune self. May we show the world that true unity looks like what it looks like as we worship together in our unique and diverse bodies. People from different nations, ethnicities, cultures, and socioeconomic backgrounds gathered to proclaim the name of Jesus. Lord, we recognize that announcing your cruciform beauty invites the opposition of the world. Deliver us from evil, we pray. Protect us from refusing your beauty for the sake of self-preservation. Give us the courage to display your cross-shaped beauty in a world where wealth, power, and recognition are seemingly more attractive than your bruised body. Protect us from the evil one, Lord, and fix our eyes on Jesus. Father, let the beauty of your Son arrest our senses so that his beauty grows in us as we stare at him. Yes, Lord, sanctify us. Make us beautiful so that the world may see true beauty. It is in Jesus' name we pray.